purpose plus progress equals happiness. Tips about what you should do to try and make your business more attractive. We're thankful that we're participating with the military sector and have a couple contracts in there. I'm Richard Gerhardt. And I'm Elizabeth Gerhardt. Passage to Profit, the show that's all about innovation, entrepreneurs, and the intellectual property that helps them flourish. You just heard some snippets from our show. So stay tuned for these amazing presentations. You'll be shocked and happy that you did. Want to patent your invention? The chance is near. You've given it heart. Now get it in gear. It's Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. Tonight on our show, we have Mike Duffy, really the happiness guy. He runs a company called Happiness Wealth Management. He's an author, philanthropist, and he's a speaker too. And joining us on our executive spotlight this evening, Ed Reitler from Reitler Law, who's going to be telling you the top seven things that VCs want to know before investing in your company. And presenting innovative technology for us is Eva Gal Rising. If you thought there wasn't any innovation left in the airline industry, well, stay tuned. But before we get to our distinguished guests, we have IP in the news. What's on the table for this evening? Well, of course, it's a patent and we're trying to make it relevant to the show. So how can you measure someone's happiness? Well, you can ask them. I guess that's one way. Are you happy? (laughs) But how can you measure it using an app or a program? Well, assuming that you'd ever really want to do that, there is somebody who filed a patent called Determining Happiness Indices, and it was filed on behalf of MicroStrategy Incorporated. And what they do is they go around the internet and they look for user groups or types of people that are acting in a way that they determine is happy. They have an algorithm for this. And And they compare them to people who are unhappy, and then they notice what they're doing on the internet during happy and unhappy moments. It sounds to me like this is completely geared for teenagers, but who knows? Maybe there's something more to that. Is there such a thing as a happy teenager? (laughs) (laughs) Well, for all of our teenagers that are listening, you know that, you know, one moment you're happy, one moment you're not, there's quite a scale there, but it's actually not a bad idea. Just to give you our audience a sense of patent jargon, I'm going to read like the first three sentences of the summary of this patent. It's a computer implemented method that includes the actions of receiving a request for data, interactive of a user segment of a social networking platform, accessing user data of the social networking platform, identifying a portion of the assessed user data, and it goes on and on and on like this for 50 pages. So anybody who thinks that intellectual property attorneys don't earn their money aren't reading patents on a regular basis because there's actually people out there that understand that. And if you think that people in tech don't get patents, think again. There you go. Now it's time for Richard's Roundtable. And I'd like to ask our guests this evening, Mike, Ed, and Eva Gal, what you thought of what we were talking about. You can either comment on the patent we discussed, or if you have a more general intellectual property question, we'd be happy to help with that too. Mike, welcome to the show. Tell us what you think. First of all, happiness is very, very important. It's in our constitution. Who doesn't want to be happy that can hear the sound of my voice, right? (laughs) So any ways that we can measure it are very important. You know, I have an IP on or a trademark on the Happiness Hall of Fame. So I have a 501c3, and we recognize, celebrate, and encourage people and organizations that make other people happy. So in the hall is Muhammad Ali, Deepak Chopra. Steph Curry, Dr. Wayne Dyer, Serena Williams, Derek Jeter. I also saw the New York Giants are in that Hall of Fame. And I'm just wondering, is that the fans that are happy or is it the Giants that are happy who are making a lot of money? And I can't imagine that they've been happy. It's actually the San Francisco Giants. Oh, San Francisco Giants. Oh, okay. Not the New York Giants. I'm a New York Jet fan. Oh, well, you'll never be happy. (laughs) I know, that's true. (laughs) So Ed, what are your thoughts? In my world, I work at a law firm that represents venture funds and emerging companies. Most of the tech companies that we represent don't have hard technology. Patents are a great thing in terms of companies gaining a defensible moat around them, but it's also difficult in web-enabled service companies or software-driven businesses to have patents that are meaningful or defensible. So I wanted to turn around and ask the two of you, Richard and Elizabeth, 
based on what you know of the patent, how defensible is it? It sounds like some sort of algorithm to measure happiness. Is that something that is really defensible? Or is that if somebody challenged that, or if they tried to enforce it and license the measurement of happiness from people trying to measure happiness, how effective would that patent be? I'll take a stab at that. I'll let Elizabeth comment too, because I know she has thoughts and remarks. First of all, it's a strategic decision for every company based in part on budget, based in part on what is it that makes their software unique? Is it something in the back end that somebody can't copy? As you know, one of the things that VCs look for are barriers to entry. And sometimes patents can be a barrier to entry for certain types of technologies. Other companies prefer to keep their technology a trade secret and try to minimize, create a barrier to entry there, thinking that by the time a competitor recreates the project, they'll be so far down the line that the competitor will never catch up. So there's a lot of things at play. We certainly have many, many companies that file software patents. We think that they're defensible. Another important piece of the puzzle is that it helps keep other people from duplicating what the patentee holds. Because in theory, another software company that might want to get into that market will do a patent search before they launch their project. And if they find your client's patent, then they're going to have to design around it or come up with with some strategy to overcome it. So at a minimum, it creates a delay before our competitors can enter the market, assuming that they're properly counseled and they're ethical companies. You know, even if it's a six-month delay and you're talking about a company that's generating, say, a million in sales a month, a six-month delay would save the company $6 million, you know, for maybe a $15 or $20,000 investment in intellectual property. So even if it's not something you end up taking to court, it can still have benefits. And I could see actually Facebook or something like that being very interested in this technology, because as we all know, there's a lot of anger online right now and has been for the past few years. And so if you could use a tool like this to gauge emotions online, then that could be very powerful for deciding how you rate the content. And you would actually have an analytical source that you could show to people saying we're not being biased. And would you want Facebook to take a look at what you had and then just develop their own? Since you didn't patent it, they could just take whatever they wanted from you. So it might make Facebook or something like that look twice and say, oh, well, they've developed this technology. They patented it. Why don't we just buy it from them instead of like stealing it? Also, I would point out that the biggest patent filers are those in the tech sector. So you have Google, you have Apple, you have Samsung. IBM is always the top. Those are the companies that file the most patents. So there's a lot of direction in the technical community. Don't waste your time filing patents, but it's kind of a situation of do as I say, don't do as I do. So that's probably a little bit more than you were expecting, but I hope you found that helpful. I did. I did. I would come to you with a client who who had those questions. It is a a business decision. I think IBM is mostly method patents. I mean, they file a lot on their technology, but they're really better known now for their systems and their integrations and all of those kinds of things. They've largely become a consulting firm at this point. Exactly. Eva Gal, how are you thinking about these issues? First of all, the title was very interesting to me uh, to measure happiness. Two thoughts came into my first. I'm impressed that, you know, they're able to actually patent something in software since it's so difficult to get any protection in software. And second, based on the brief description you gave us, it seems that they use data from social media and other uh, sources that people use in their daily lives. And I wonder how the how the market is, is moving towards people trying to have a little more control about the data with VPNs and um, allowing or not allowing an app to follow or follow your data. How will that impact that patent if they have a thought of way to defend it uh, within their patent so they have workarounds around it. But uh, a good question I had actually towards you guys, when it comes to software, software is easily uh, copied 
especially when it's something is online. So I wonder if you had a very good protection, very good claims on a software. Do you recommend companies or people filing to file beyond just in the U.S. to file in other market sectors that could try to copy it would be beneficial in the business plan? Or do you think that is something not worthwhile uh, in a software company? Well, that's a great question. And I love it when the uh, question about patenting software internationally comes up. I would say that there was uh, a case, a Supreme Court case that was decided a while ago. It's called the Alice case, and it makes software patents harder to get. And so for a long time, people shied away from filing uh, software patents, method patents, but the pendulum is now swinging back in part because the patent office has a large staff of examining attorneys that examine software. And so they had to keep them employed. The other part of that too, is that the patent office has issued guidelines saying, well, if you do it this way, we'll approve it, right? So software patents are actually getting easier to get and the pendulum has moved away from the you'll never get it to the much better chances in line with all of the other types of intellectual property that are being granted. So all of that was absolutely fascinating to me as an intellectual property lawyer guy. And I really enjoyed our discussion, but we do have to take a commercial break. So we'll be back with more Passage to Profit right after this. What are entrepreneurs' most valuable assets? Their passion and ideas. We can't protect your passion, but we can protect your ideas. Trust Gearheart Law to protect your ideas with premier patent, trademark, and copyright services. There's never been a better time to start your own business. Contact us at GearheartLaw.com. At Gearheart Law, we have years of experience protecting entrepreneurs' ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application, that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at Gearheart Law, www.gearheartlaw.com. Don't let the wrong protection strategy ruin your business. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection and are licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Contact Gearheart Law on the web at G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. Together, we can change the world. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now back to Passage to Profit. Once again, Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. Our special guest this evening, Mike Duffy. So Mike is a happiness coach, I guess, happiness connoisseur. And we're so happy to have him on the show. So welcome to the show, Mike. Well, thank you very much. You know, I love your show. And yeah, I have been in the field of happiness for 10 years now. I've written five books on happiness. And I think that happiness needs to be in everybody conscience on a daily basis. One thing you do is happiness and wealth management. So mm-hmm. I kind of feel like sometimes money can make you happy. <laughs> what do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, shopping makes many people happy. The thing is, it's not sustainable. So you want to have sustainable happiness. Now, how do you do that? Well, I have a happiness formula. It's P plus P equals H. Purpose plus progress equals happiness. And that will sustain happiness throughout your life. So I really think that that's a unique approach. I did see that in one of your videos I viewed before the show. And the PPH really rang true to me because I think making progress is what is most satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been in financial services for 30 years now. I have my own firm, Happiness Wealth Management. So I work with people with money. And I can tell you they're no different than people without money for the most part. But what I say to them is, when the first time I meet them, I say, what makes you happy and how can we get more of that? So we write it down. You know, Benjamin Franklin said that 1% of the people are successful because only 1% of the people write down their goals. Now, that's great advice. And I'm a prodigious goal writer Mm -hmm. and planner myself. And it does seem to create a magic that if you write it down somehow, some way, it's more likely to happen. Absolutely. The other thing that people need to understand is that great happiness comes through giving, right? St. Augustine said that it's in giving that we receive. Now, think about it in your own life. When somebody gives you a present, that's nice. But when you give somebody a special present and their face lights up, it means 10 times more 
in receiving that present. It really is true. And, you know, the old adage, it's better to give than to receive is actually supposed to be, it's better to be in a position to give than to be in a position to have to receive. And it does make me feel good when I can help somebody. We had an episode where somebody came on with a charity after the show, they talked about a charity and we decided to support it because it was so important. Yeah. And the thing is, in my position as helping people steward their wealth, I show them ways where they can be more effective in giving, like through a donor advice fund. You've got highly appreciated stock and you want to give. Why give it with after-tax money? Put that highly appreciated stock into a donor advised fund, and then you can sell it, get the tax write-off, and you have more money to give. It's beautiful. Right. I wasn't aware that those things existed. So thank <laughs> otherwise, this last donation may have occurred in that manner. So tell me a little bit about how to set one of these funds up. It's very simple, and you don't need to have a lot of money. You know, I think that the smallest one, you can start with about $1,000, $2,500. So it's not for the ultra wealthy, it's available to everybody. And so, you know, if, you, if you've got questions about that, you can go to happinesswealthmanagement.com. I've got answers on that, or you can just drop me a line. So what got you interested in the world of happiness? I have to put my head into the lion's mouth of bad news on a second by second basis as a wealth manager. I need to know where the markets are moving so I can set up the allocation for my folks to make money. So I said, you know what, I need to come up with an antidote for all of this bad news. So I started the Happiness Hall of Fame. And so is that for you personally? Basically, I've created like a justice league of some of the most amazing people in the world. And I have the ability. So for example, Mark Victor Hansen has become a friend of mine. He is the co-author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, right? So I, you know, during COVID, I gave him a call. I said, how are you handling COVID? I go on these virtual talk shows and things and, you know, people want to know how they can be happy in COVID. So that's why I started it so that I could bring great information to folks. Well, that sounds like a great idea. Who else is in the Happiness Hall of Fame? I know where the New York Giants are, but who <laughs> else is who else is in? Okay, so you know that I'm going to have my favorites, right? So Dolly Parton is in the Happiness Hall of Fame. And every year at Stanford University, where I've taught classes on happiness, we have a big induction ceremony. And she couldn't make it, uh, but she sent me a great video. And if you go to happinesshalloffame.com, you will see wonderful people and wonderful videos of some amazing people and organizations, by the way. So Make-A-Wish is in there. Ronald McDonald House, the Wounded Warrior Project. We had an amazing wounded warrior come out who had lost his legs. And out of all of the standing ovations that I've witnessed over the years, this man had a five-minute standing ovation. So you can learn from all of the people that are on this website. Well, I think you bring up a really good point. All of us have had terrible things happen to us in our lives. I don't care who you are, but people can be happy regardless if they choose to, right? Absolutely. So I always talk about resiliency. Resiliency is a secret weapon that you can have in your arsenal to stay happy. Now, what does that mean? When something bad happens, you can say, this situation contaminated me. It hurt me permanently. That's where most people fall. However, I tell people, turn it around. Say, this situation happened for me. I am better and stronger as a result of this. I'm a silver linings guy. You know, sometimes the worst things that can happen to you can just be a setup for a comeback and you learn valuable experience as a result. I think that's great advice. I think that people who are happier tend to look more toward the future and look forward and are able to let go of the negativity that happened, look at it, learn from it, and then just stay focused on the future because you can't fix the past. And if you carry all of those things around with you, then you're only hurting yourself. Absolutely. You know, my recent inductee into the hall is Dr. Kevin Elko. And he's got a great saying. He has won 30 championships through college and professional football as a sports psychologist. Works with Nick Saban over the years, Philadelphia Eagles. And he's saying, so what, now what? Stuff's always going to happen to you. So if you're armed with so what, 
Now what? What do we do in the future? Bob Dylan said, life is not about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself. Who do you want to be? Make it happen. You can do it. Well, I think the other thing is, why is happiness important? Well, there are really two reasons, I think, main reasons. One is it because it keeps you healthier overall, mentally and physically. But the other, and I don't know, maybe this is even a little more important, is people want to be around you if you're a happy yes. person. Yes. <laughs> Which Absolutely. is sometimes lawyers don't have any friends because, you know, I'm not pointing to myself here, but. Who wants to go out to lunch with a sad sack, right? <laughs> okay. That is, Elizabeth, that's a fantastic point. We want to be the person that people are attracted to. Happiness gives you power. As all the entrepreneurs that are listening right now, you have to be positive. You can't get up in front of angel investors and say, I think this is going to work. I'm not so certain, right? You can't be Jackie Mason, the great Jackie Mason. Oh, it could be this. No, you have to have confidence in yourself. You have to know that whatever happens in your life, that happiness, that resiliency, this positive energy is going to get you through to solve any problem. You mentioned a formula for defining happiness, but I kind of think that happiness is a feeling. It's kind of an elation. Is that how you view happiness? Or do you view happiness as more sort of satisfaction? And the two are kind of related. Joy versus satisfaction, happiness. Where does it fall in among all those different pieces? I define happiness as contented excitement. You have to understand we only have so many days in our life why are you sitting around in your own pity party that nobody wants to join? Why not create something, create a legacy, bless people, be happy that you have conscious thought that you're on the right side of the ground. This is not a dress <laughs> rehearsal. Come on, people. Oh, so no. Mike, if you find yourself in the doldrums or somebody really torn you apart or something, how do you bring yourself back? I have my goals written down. I have things to do. I have a homeless outreach. I have friends on the street that count on me. I need to show up every day for them, right? I'm that smile. I may be their only friend in the entire world. So I can't let something that somebody said about me get me down. I got places to go. So your purpose is bigger than anything that could try to pull you away, is what you're Absolutely. saying. Absolutely. I have children. We have a moral obligation if you're in a family to be happy for your children and to be happy for the people that love you. You know, happiness is a choice on a second-by-second -second basis. I always make the choice to be happy. Oh, well, I'm feeling happy now. So thank you for coming on the show. You can do it. You've made my day. I mean, this is great. So anyway, Mike, where can you be reached and how can people connect with you? If you're looking for a financial advisor that's going to focus on your happiness, that's what separates you from everybody. Go to happinesswealthmanagement.com. And will your clients be happy even if they lose a little money once in a while? <laughs> well, look, the markets go up and down, but over time, if you buy quality, you're going to make money. Well, I guess I'd rather have a happy investor partner than an unhappy one, right? Agreed. So, and an optimist instead of a pessimist. So that mm -hmm. sounds fantastic. Well, you're listening to Passage to Profit, and we're having a very happy moment. And we'll be back after this happy moment on WOR 710, the voice of New York. There's never been a better time to start your own business. The opportunities are infinite and only limited by your imagination and enthusiasm. At Gearheart Law, we believe the most successful companies all have one thing in common. They start with a solid foundation first. Gearheart Law has years of experience protecting entrepreneurs, ideas, and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at www.gearheartlaw.com. Our professionals will create a custom strategy designed to fit your needs and your budget. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection, licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Visit gearheartlaw.com. Together, we can change the world. Visit G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. This ad has been read by a non-attorney. Spoke
spokesperson. Passage to Profit continues with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. And we just really had a great interview with Mike Duffy. Really fantastic. If you haven't caught it all, you should go check out our podcast or check out our YouTube channel. Our podcast will be available tomorrow on all places where podcasts reside. And our YouTube channel is findable by just typing Passage to Profit Show, and you'll be able to see and hear our amazing guests. Coming up next, we have Ed Reitler, who is really one of the top deal guys in New York, if not the top deal guy in New York. He does a lot of VC work, and he's really a special treat to have him on the show because entrepreneurs usually want money. And he's here to tell you the top seven things that VCs look for in a company to invest in. So, Ed, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Richard and Elizabeth. Gosh, you and my mother say the nicest things about me. So <laughs> I, really, I really do appreciate that. And I'm still stuck on Mike's interview. Wow. Uh, I have an 11-year-old who uh, really gets a lot of happiness out of receiving Christmas gifts and birthday <laughs> gifts. And uh, so I, I'll have to buy one or more of your books for him to read to get on the other side of that and maybe even be more joyful by giving. But he really is a good receiver. So I'll have to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and speaking of receiving, there are lots of entrepreneurs out there. You don't need a license to become an entrepreneur like you do to drive a car. Uh, so there's so many of them. There's so many people who want to do it. I used to teach Columbia Business School as an adjunct lecturer. When I first started in the 90s, so many of the B school students wanted to go into investment banking or finance. By the time I finished, I taught a class in entrepreneurship. So many of them, many more of them wanted to go into the venture world, into either being an entrepreneur or an investor in entrepreneurship. So there are a lot of them out there and they are seeking capital. I'm happy to talk about tips about what you should do to try and make your business more attractive to venture capitalists, if that makes sense. Great. That would be great. Yeah. So the venture capitalist is the person that a business goes to after they've gotten the angel investment. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a great question, Elizabeth. So often you start as an entrepreneur uh, with your friends and family around, which is even before you go to third-party angels that you don't know. Once you have angel capital uh, and you still, as an entrepreneur, need fuel to accelerate your business, there are choices you could go for a strategic investor, be a corporate investor, or some sort of partner. Uh, in your business. But the most frequent choice is, as you suggest, is venture capital. And there are all kinds of subclasses of assets within the general venture capital asset class, starting with seed, maybe at the lowest end, going to series A, growth equity, and then very late stage venture, like you hear with the SoftBank Vision Fund. What are the types of things that VCs look for? I mean, they get a lot of proposals, right? And they screen through them and they make decisions. So what are some of the things that they're looking for when they're looking for companies to invest in? Really a, a few big things. I call maybe the biggest thing, the opportunity founder fit. That's the fit between what the opportunity or problem the founding team is looking to solve and their background and what they bring to the company and to the opportunity. What about their past? What about their education or their prior work experience? makes them likely to succeed in solving a problem or uh, developing a new opportunity. Second, coachability. So many entrepreneurs just get locked into a certain mentality. They don't take advice from a board of directors or advisors that come in to help them. And that is something that VCs will be looking at very early on in the vetting process. Does this entrepreneur listen when I speak or do they have a thoughtful response to ideas that I give them or are they just talking over me and kind of looking at their opportunity in solving a problem with blinders on. Third, as a venture investor myself, as a founder of uh, three small micro funds, I too, and, and VCs look for adaptability, ability to pivot, because one of the things you know, and I'm looking forward to hearing from Eva Gale uh, later about her company, but one of the things that happened when you come up with an idea and you start to execute on it, there are roadblocks and problems that you have to solve, pivots that you should make that come somewhat with coachability, the prior point I was making, but you have to realize that your plan is not going to go 100% smoothly. There are going to be challenges, hurdles, and roadblocks you'll face. And how you address that, that quote from Mike earlier, your resiliency, being able to pivot when life throws lemons at you and make lemonade out of it. I love your list. And when you talk about pivoting, how does the VC get a sense of the pivotability of the organization. Is that just through interviews or discussions? Where does that come from? Some of that could come from the past of the entrepreneur. By the time 
a venture fund gets to an entrepreneur, there's often been, I mentioned product opportunity fit, there's often been some sort of product market fit or service market fit. So whatever it is that the entrepreneur and their team is developing, there's been some evidence up to this point of what they started with, where they started when they had a white paper or a business plan and the product that's actually out in market right now and the feedback and watching the entrepreneurs receive feedback from their customers, whether it's consumer oriented or B2B and how they respond to that. Did they then improve their cost of acquiring a customer? How responsive were they to the needs of their B2B customers? Did they provide the service or product improvements that were being requested? And so there'll be some history of that by the time an entrepreneur gets in front of a VC. Right. So what was your next point? Something called TAM, Total Addressable Market. A venture fund is looking at the seed stage for a multiple on the return because they're investing at such an early stage. These investments are so risky, many of them are going to fail. In fact, there's some really interesting numbers put up by Andres Horowitz, which is a very prominent venture fund based in the Valley, but they have offices all over, that some 3,000 companies approach them or, or they review some 3,000 business plans or decks. Of that, they only look seriously at about 200 and invest in 20 of them a 0.7%. And from an aggregate perspective, they put these numbers out. I think they're actually too low. But if they assume that there are 4,000 quality companies looking for investments, then only 5% or some 200 of them actually get quality VCs. I think those numbers are too small. But of those 200, about 15 generate almost all of the economic return of those 4,000 companies seeking capital. So if you look at that, only 8% of companies reach some sort of success that are funded. Of the total amount of companies that actually look for venture financing that actually have meaningful economic impact on their investors, it's 0.5% or one in every 2,000 companies that are started. So if I'm an investor, I've got to look at a company because I know I'm going to have a lot of zeros with those numbers. I've got to look at a company that went for those few that do hit in my hopefully diverse portfolio. I will have a 10x return here and there to make up for the losses so that I can get my investors some sort of high teens internal rate of return or IRR. It's a tough route to go if you're an entrepreneur seeking venture funding because, you know, the odds are definitely against you. But, you know, there's always the possibility that it can work out and pay off for everybody else. What's also interesting is usually the venture people have a lot of experience with businesses and you'd almost think that with all that experience, they would have a better sort of call rate. Their percentages would be higher, but that's just not the case. I think you've got some of the most experienced business people on these funds and they're wrong a lot. You know? So I guess it's not so much that they're wrong is that they're making educated guesses or bets right. on okay. companies. They know going in that they have to have a diverse portfolio. You know, Many of these funds at the seed stage are looking for a portfolio of companies between 17 and maybe 25 to have enough diversity so that they give themselves enough bullets in the chamber to perhaps hit those 10x or 10 baggers to offset for the many losses. They know the losses are coming and they know that for reasons beyond the control of the entrepreneurs who often really go through many sacrifices and work extremely hard to generate returns for their investors, that notwithstanding those efforts, that many of them are going to fail through no fault of anybody with lack of execution. I've invested in companies through our funds where regulation changes, Medicare stops reimbursing a certain procedure in your company. That was their big product and service and you're out of business. So it's a very challenging, risky area of the market, but can also be very rewarding. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs go into the space because they're aspirational, right? It's the American dream to be a Mark Zuckerberg, to find that great next new product or service that really changes the world and makes you you know, fabulously wealthy and, and perhaps even if you're working with Mike, fabulously happy as well. <laughs> yeah, I just want to say one thing and then I do want to hear from Mike on this, but I think too, for investors, you can't always gauge what the public wants and is thinking because I remember when TikTok first started, it had been going for a little bit. I watched this video that this young woman had done on TikTok and basically she was standing there like wiggling back and forth, right? And then she put it on TikTok. And then the next day she'd gotten like a million views of her wiggling back. Like who would have thought TikTok would have taken off like it did? So 
it's really trying to judge what people are going to react to. And that's not always easy, I think. Yeah, I, I wish I'd have thought about wiggling for a promotional video for my law firm, but I don't know how. <laughs> so, Mike, do you have a comment or a question for Ed? You know, my clients are the entrepreneurs that are listening to the show. I'm in Silicon Valley, right? And I've been out here since 95. So, all of these personality types, everything that Ed has been talking about, you've been talking about, are the challenges that my clients face. And we have sessions, you know, they'll come to me, they'll, you know, I'll give a review of their accounts, okay, and then they'll pick my brain because they know what I do. And they'll say, well, how can I overcome this challenge? And there are three words that I say to every entrepreneur that wants to overcome any challenge. It's what if I, if you ask yourself those three words, what if I, and you let your mind go blank, and you approach the challenge that nothing is outrageous. Remember, we took a tin can and put it on the moon. You can solve any entrepreneurial challenge if you have the optimism to do it. That's a very positive approach. And I also want to say, I mean, one of the things that I admire about Ed is that his law firm was a bit of a startup too. I mean, from what I understand, Ed, you created a really successful law firm from scratch, and you have a bit of entrepreneuring yourself. Well, yeah, mostly I wish I could say that I was really thoughtful about it, but through lack of imagination, I've always wanted to start something. It's just a bug that I have. And for entrepreneurs out there, when you can't get an idea out of your head, it means you're passionate about it. and You really want to build something and create something. And if you have that drive, then maybe entrepreneurship is for you because there'll be a lot of economic privations that you'll suffer. You won't get paid a lot. Maybe you won't get paid anything for some period of time. Entrepreneurship is really only something for those who are very passionate about a particular challenge or problem that they want to solve or opportunity they want to exploit. In my case, I was at a large law firm doing cross-border mergers and acquisitions work. And I was learning a ton, but I felt like I was a cog in a machine. And that if I was unplugged uh, from any part of this machine, that somebody else could be plugged into it. And the machine wouldn't even notice. And that was a little bit dispiriting for somebody who wanted to make a difference. But really through lack of imagination, I started a law firm out of all things I could have started. But the law firm was started in the 90s at a time when venture deals, the tech deals are falling out of trees in the New York metro region and hitting me in the head. And we kind of fell into becoming a tech firm at that point, first representing the companies and then eventually the venture funds. And what I really loved and I still love about my job to this day, I think my colleagues do as well, otherwise they wouldn't be here, is that when you work with entrepreneurs, it can be maddening at times, for sure. But they can also, and Richard and Elizabeth, I know you do the same with your team, with your clients, but they can also be so inspiring and visionary. And I learn so much from them every day. And every day I come to work, I know I'm going to learn more. And it feels more like an avocation of mine, and not so much a job. And, and that's really what I love about it. And I was able to do some things in a small boutique law firm that I wouldn't have been able to do in a large firm, like start our right, advisory group, our VCs on skis event, which is so much fun. And then of course, the sort of micro funds that invest in our clients, angel round capital and right, their opportunity capital. I know that like, if you watch Shark Tank, they get the promise that Mark Cuban or somebody is going to mentor them and guide them. How much of that does a VC do with their clients or with their entrepreneurs? So a VC should be selling more than just their capital. They should be selling their network and their experience and their skill sets and their availability too. Because a lot of the VCs are very busy. They may be serving on five, six or more boards at one time. So as an entrepreneur, you want to look at that. You want to interview actually portfolio companies, not just that the VC has invested in, but the individual of that fund who you're interacting with or interfacing with that will be on your board of observers to see how much support they've given other executives. And ideally, this may be a bit touchy, but it would be ideal if you got to speak with one of the executive team members of a portfolio company that has failed with this particular venture investor. I think that's pretty telling about how supportive that person was in that process. But that is a key component of what a VC should be bringing to the table. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating, Ed. I think you're way too modest when it comes to talking about your law firm, but that's okay. That's part of your charm. So we have to move on now to a commercial, but we'll be right back with Passage to Profit. Our special guest this evening is Mike Duffy, and you just heard from Ed Reitler. Ed, how can people get in touch with you? My email is on our website, reitlerlaw.com, and I'm happy to hear from anybody or answer questions. We'll be back right after this. Hi. I'm Lisa Askley, the Inventress, founder, CEO, and president of Inventing A to Z. 
I've been inventing products for over 38 years. Hundreds of products later and dozens of patents. I help people develop products and put them on the market from concept to fruition. I bring them to some of the top shopping networks in the world. QVC, HSN, Evine Live, and retail stores. Have you ever said to yourself, someone should invent that thing? Well, I say, why not make it you? If you want to know how to develop a product from concept to fruition the right way, contact me, Lisa Askeles, the inventress. Go to inventingatoz.com, inventingatoz.com. Email me, lisa at inventingatoz.com. Treat yourself to a day chock full of networking, education, music, shopping, and fun. Go to my website, inventingatoz.com. What are entrepreneurs' most valuable assets? Their passion and ideas. We can't protect your passion, but we can protect your ideas. Trust Gearheart Law to protect your ideas with premier patent, trademark, and copyright services. There's never been a better time to start your own business. Contact us at GearheartLaw.com. At Gearheart Law, we have years of experience protecting entrepreneurs' ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at Gearheart Law, www.gearheartlaw.com. Don't let the wrong protection strategy ruin your business. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection and are licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Contact Gearheart Law on the web at G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. Together, we can change the world. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now back to Passage to Profit. Once again, Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. And that was just an amazing discussion with Ed Reitler. And before that, we talked with Mike Duffy. Lots of good content. Make sure you tune in to our YouTube channel and catch our podcast coming out tomorrow, wherever podcasts can be caught. Coming up next, we have our very own Elizabeth Gerhardt is going to be talking about her startup, Fireside. So what's new with Fireside, Elizabeth? Well, first, I have to tell everybody what Fireside is. It's actually Fireside Directory, and it's a video directory of small businesses. And I started it right before the pandemic, where I was interviewing people to get content for the directory. It's kind of a combination project. I really want it to be really a tech project, but there's other pieces to it. And then COVID hit and it actually helped some because everybody wanted to talk about their businesses on Zoom and I just recorded a lot of interviews. So I have over a hundred interviews that I accumulated content with during COVID and I have a website, but it was just an off the shelf theme. So right now I'm trying to find somebody to do a new website for me and I'm in my friends and family round. (laughs) 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 Um, But it's really interesting. And you tech guys know this, that trying to find somebody to do the website is a challenge. And luckily, I have a COO who's a tech guy who knows a lot about websites. And he and I are interviewing website designers together. And I've also done a lot of research just on Google about what you need to do when you're starting a new website. Yeah, what was so funny, the last guy, he said, oh, you mean you want it to work on mobile phones? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so if you look at some of the latest websites 2021, right, the first thing they say is you have to design it for mobile first because Google looks at mobile first. And if you don't have that, then you're really going to be hurt. And I was surprised, quite honestly, that not everybody designs their websites that way. So I am writing a patent application application on related ideas that Richard and I came up with together, brainstorming that I can't talk about. (laughs) So so I'm a patent agent. I'm not a patent attorney, but I'm a patent agent. So I'm writing my patent application. And that is what I'm going to be doing next week when I'm not doing all these Zoom meetings. <laughs> so that's where Fireside is Wow, right a now. Zoom sabbatical. That would that sounds so nice. Yeah, I'm not doing it any does. Zoom meetings next week. Zoom I, I like told everybody. I could totally go there. Well, that's great. Thanks for the update. And now it's time to speak with our presenter. Right. So we have Abigail Rising. And what she's doing is just amazing. And I know that she's in Sandy Woolman's group 
as one of his entrepreneurs with Westchester Angels. Abigail, could you please explain what your company is and what you're doing? Certainly. Thank you for having me for the wonderful show and with other wonderful guest speakers. Basically, we are using the life experience of my co-founder, Darian, who was an aircraft electrician for the U.S. military for over 14 years until he got injured because of the metal clamps used today and lost his job, home, everything until he became an engineer and created the solution. The solution is to replace his metal clamps, which you can find in the tens of thousands in one single aircraft with our resilient thermoplastic solution that is faster, lighter, and easier to install. But the kicker thing is, and unique about it, or the uniqueness about it, is that we have sensors embedded into our clamp that can map, monitor, and diagnose electrical systems in any vehicle, taking something that can take up to two weeks or more down to a couple hours, greatly saving a lot of money in operational saving time, maintenance time, and as well reducing weight of an aircraft from 50 pounds on a helicopter all the way to 600 pounds or more on a commercial size aircraft. Right now, we're thankful that we're participating with the military sector on the future vertical lift and have uh, quite a couple contracts in there. So you'll be seeing our clamps into the new models of helicopters and future commercial aircraft as well. That's amazing. What you're saying is that you've got clamps that are used in big airplanes, passenger airplanes, and there's like 10,000 of these in any given airplane. That's a lot of clamps. They hold up the electrical wiring system and they you can find from up to 20,000 5,000 of them, and a 777, for example, a Boeing 777. And they hold electric wire according to FAA regulations. You have to have a clamp every six inches or every six to 12 inches in an aircraft. So that's how they quickly add up, considering a commercial has over 30 miles of electrical wiring. I'm really interested in the safety aspect. So do these clamps talk to each other? Could you trace the whole line with all the clamps talking to each other and pinpoint where there might be a problem? Yes, they talk to each other. They communicate and send the information both on ground and the air. Uh, does not disrupt any any of the equipment on the aircraft and is able to create this digital twin of the electrical system and let you know where the problem is, how to fix it, what it is, and it can even pinpoint down to which wire in that bundle is having the problem. The way they're doing it now is they have to use test equipment on either ends of the wire and they have to go through and they have to test each wire to find out which one is faulty, right? And that takes a lot of time and creates a lot of cost. It does. And I was trying to see if I was a good entrepreneur, had a a clamp here on my desk, but I I couldn't find it. So, (laughs) But, (laughs) but, um, but yes, they currently, they walk around, they, they use reflectometry where they sing a signal and it comes back to see where the problem is, or they go around shaking the wire with a multimeter, trying to find where the core <laughs> is. Oh so, well, if there's only six inches between the clamps, so there's a limit to the amount of shaking they could do, maybe. I don't know. Mike, do you have any questions? First of all, I love your show. If there's one thing I want to share with the entrepreneurs and Eva Gall, you know, as she goes about this important work, is to PFP, plan for peace. There's going to be so many things that go wrong, unforeseen things. And as an entrepreneur, you want to stay in peace, understand that things might go wrong, and to plan to stay in peace. Does that make sense? So, for example, let's say you wanted to get on a plane and go to a smaller city, and you don't have a nonstop, and you know that there's a good chance that you could be delayed. What do you do? You leave a day early, right? That's just one example that an entrepreneur should have to plan for peace. I'm with you there. I'm always trying to leave early. Richard's always trying to leave late. Between the two of us, we're kind of on time. (laughs) But yeah, that can make you feel better about what you're doing, right? Yeah. So far, my mental patterns have been to plan for stress. (laughs) And And he's good at that. Because I know that it's coming. But maybe if I change my approach and plan for peace, then I won't have so much stress. So. Staying in peace is staying in power. So Ed, right now, if you gals with Westchester Angels, what would be the next step for, say, VC investment? I don't know if Abigail wants that. Do you? For now, we've been fortunate enough that we secured quite a large contracts for the clamps. So if we go down the VC round, probably in a couple of years, it'll be for more like scale during that stage. We didn't talk about scalability, but obviously that's something that venture funds look for because they're putting small amounts of money to work. They have 
have smaller funds, they can't have massive capital projects that they can fund. Those companies that do need a lot of capital, often the earlier investors like VCs, seed funds, angels, friends and family. I would just ask you, Miguel, is your product in the market now? It must be if you've got a contract. Our product has been tested and certified under military specification standards for aviation and is currently in this contract to be implemented to the future vertical lift. One of the things that has helped us get to where we are currently is something you mentioned is coachability. I love learning. I love people that have gone through this before to give me advice and help implement it. It's one of the reasons we've been able to uh, manage any uh, barriers of entry or anything that came along the line for people that are smarter than me, that are around me, (laughs) helping me move the company forward. So definitely. We're running out of time for this segment, but I do want to say five years from now, when you're not sitting on the tarmac as long waiting because the airplane has a problem, you can thank Abigail for it, right? (laughs) 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 Listeners, you are listening to Passage to Profit, the Inventor Show with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart, our special guest, Mike Duffy, our executive spotlight, Ed Ryder, and our presenter, Abigail Rising. We will be right back after this message. Stay tuned. We're on W. WOR 710, the voice of New York. There's never been a better time to start your own business. The opportunities are infinite and only limited by your imagination and enthusiasm. At Gearheart Law, we believe the most successful companies all have one thing in common. They start with a solid foundation first. Gearheart Law has years of experience protecting entrepreneurs, ideas, and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at www.gearheartlaw.com. Our professionals will create a custom strategy designed to fit your needs and your budget. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection, licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Visit gearheartlaw.com. Together, we can change the world. Visit G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L W.com. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now more with Richard and Elizabeth. Passage to Profit. If you missed our show, because we're almost done, you missed some really good stuff. There was a lot of really great advice and just high energy. It's been a really great show, but you can catch it on the podcast tomorrow on all the podcasting platforms, Passage to Profit Show. You can go see our YouTube channel. We had Mike Duffy, Happiness Wealth Management. And you can find him at happinesswealthmanagement.com. He has great ideas for being happy and how to be happy with how you're using your money. Then we had Edward G. Reitler. I say that because on LinkedIn, he's Edward G. Reitler. And it's R-E-I-T-L-E-R. And it's reitlerlaw.com. Yeah, get the deal done with Ed Reitler. Yeah, he's a venture capitalist. So an investor and knows a whole lot about entrepreneurism and revolutionizing the airline industry and maintenance in particular. We had Eva Gell rising with United Aircraft Technologies. And you can find her website at uairtech.com. That's the letter U-A-I-R-T-E-K.com. Well, what a fantastic show. I've loved our guests. I've loved the interaction. It's been absolutely amazing. Ed, before we go, do you have any final thoughts for our audience? For all the entrepreneurs who are looking to build something, try and get people around you that have done this before, that have had some success and get them to involve and take ownership in your project, even if that means giving out some small amounts of equity to incent them. The more talented people you can attract, the easier your job of executing will be. And of course, and then ultimately of attracting capital as well. Mike? Well, what I'd like to leave everybody off with is that you are the author of the story of the rest of your life. Keep learning, keep stretching, keep growing. Embrace wild, outrageous ideas. Nothing is impossible. You can do it. You could be happy. Well, that's great. Thanks so much to our guests and to our audience. We love you. And we'll be back again next week with another exciting episode of Passage to Profit. But before we go, I'd like to thank our producer, Noah Fleischman, our project coordinator, Alicia Morrissey, our video editor, Chatter Boss. And don't forget to like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Passage to Profit on iHeartRadio, WOR710, the voice of New York. 